He became sin Who knew no sin That we might become His righteousness He humbled Himself And carried the cross Love so Welcome to this service, all of you. I'm Roger Edrington, and whether you are from Blossom Valley Bible Church, or whether you're watching from somewhere else in the world, whether you're a follower of Jesus, or whether you're not, I hope you will gain something from this message. I'm sure it hasn't escaped anyone's notice that we are in the middle of, or perhaps the beginning of, and certainly not the end of, a global pandemic. This unwelcome traveler has affected the whole world. It's infected 188 countries, even the smallest islands. And the U.S. is number one, both in cases and in deaths. More than the next three countries combined. And though people are eager to get back to normal, and some are so impatient that they're doing things that are clearly against the guidelines that our leaders have given us, this pandemic is not finished. In most of the states in the United States, new cases are either going up, including California, or staying even. Only 10 states are reporting less new cases. But my question as a follower of Jesus is, What have we learned in this pandemic? What have we learned in our tough time? Not just about the coronavirus. There's so much to learn. We're still learning about that. But about life. About our life with God. About our life at home and and at work. And in our normal activities of life. This type of global information and global shutdown is something that none of us have ever experienced before. Now, some of us have experienced pandemics before. People talk about the the Spanish flu in 1918. I wasn't alive then, but in 1957 and 58, there was what we called at the time the Asian flu. And I looked it up and I found that 116,000 people had died during that in the United States. And 1.1 million is estimated to have died around the world. And if I remember correctly, my sisters and I both all had that disease, and uh, somehow we made it through. They did close down school for a while, but never has almost the whole world experienced an almost total lockdown so that we're only supposed to go places that are absolutely essential. In India, my friends there have told me that people were beaten or even jailed if they were going someplace without a designated purpose. And it was very strictly followed in other countries too. We weren't so strict here. But what have we learned in a situation that we can take with us for the rest of our lives? I've asked a number of friends and they've contributed some thoughts here and I put them together with my own thoughts. And I want to help us walk through what we may have learned through this. 
Now, this message is different from my usual one, and then I don't have a, a regular text for the whole thing. And some of the points that I make won't have any text. Some of them may be controversial even, and you may have to see whether or not you agree with me or not. And so I have about a, a baker's dozen of these things that I want to share. This first one is personal, so it doesn't count. What, what have I learned from preaching to an empty building? First of all, the good side is that when I mess up a word, when I bobble a thought, which is often, I can go back and start that section over. And Steve, who does a great job of editing these videos, can save me and save you from some of my worst bobbles. I also like it that I can be in different locations in the church building or even elsewhere if I wanted to, to give you some variety and also to give me some variety. But the downsides are bigger. You know, I miss the immediate response that we have. I mean, we're not exactly a hallelujah or an amen church. But when we're together, sometimes I can see that somebody gets the point. I can see it on your faces. And if I do say something that's supposed to be funny, now I don't find out whether it really was funny or not. But most of all, I miss all of you. I miss those times before and after the service when we can share our joys and we can share our sorrows and we can pray for one another in that situation. Perhaps the first thing that we've all had to learn in this global pandemic is that we are not in control. We're not. We always knew this when certain things happened, when an illness hit, perhaps a member of your family or a friend, perhaps you had a major difficulty or some setback and you said, wow, you know, I know we're not in control of all of, all of this. But now, surely the whole world has to know we are not in control. There's an old Yiddish proverb that says, man plans, God laughs. Or in the biblical book of Proverbs, said a little differently, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We probably all had plans, and we should have had plans, but we must be careful to make our plans tentatively, contingent on the Lord's will, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago in James chapter 4. Now, I'm not saying that this pandemic is ultimately the Lord's will. Evil is never primarily God's main will. But nothing goes on without passing through God's permissive will. We know that God gives the devil limited freedom as the prince of this world, and he can cause havoc and mayhem through diseases and catastrophe and tragedy as a result, really, of the first people's sin. And we learn that in the book of Job, too, when we see the devil is given freedom to attack his life. And the truth is, of course, we often cause our own difficulties, poor decisions, sins that can affect your own health and can affect people around you as well. What I do know is that God works in the middle of this messed up world. He created it very good, but now some of the things in this world, because of sin, are actually very bad. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 20, 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we also ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sonship to the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So creation is groaning, just as we are groaning to get life back to normal again. But God doesn't want us to go back to the old normal. That's not what the Spirit of God in us longs for. God wants us to learn something in this situation, to yearn for something deeper than even we had before. He wants us to mature. He wants us to grow in faith. God wants us to learn something in this situation. He wants us to live as saved people. He wants us to live as children of the Father that we are. And we look forward one day to the hope of complete redemption but we are not there yet. That's not today. And we must remember that God does things in his way, in his own time, and he doesn't ask our permission. He certainly never asked my permission. But he allows things that are surprising to us. And, and we may not understand why these things are. And we don't have to understand why. We just have to remember that we are not in control. And in the middle of our tough times, we need to see truth. Where is God working? I mean, how can I be used by God for God's purposes in this troubled world? Jesus told his disciples an interesting promise. In this world, he said, you will have trouble. This is a troubled world. Trouble is normal. Danger is no normal for followers of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. We walk into danger on the balance beam between careful wisdom and godly innocence. Some of you know Jim Yost, a missionary to Papua, Indonesia, for almost 40 years. And when I asked him for some comments about what he'd learned, he said, you know, when you see a disaster, don't focus on the disaster, but see God's truth in the middle of it. See Jesus in the midst of it. We don't understand that sometimes victory is just around the corner. Jesus was actually asleep in the boat when there was a great storm coming on and the disciples who were there rowing and, and trying to get to where they wanted to be thought they were going to drown. But what they didn't realize was that the one who was asleep in the boat with them 
was the one who could actually save them. He was right there with them. They didn't know that he was the one who could calm the storm. And God works in the middle of our tough situations. People coming to Christ in in big waves don't usually happen in those lazy days of summer, the times when things are easy. Revival often happens in the hardest times. Disasters, war, earthquakes, tsunamis, pandemics but only if Christians will stay right in the middle of it. And when you see what God is doing, you mobilize. You must see the truth and then do something about it. And those who follow Jesus will mobilize quickly. They'll see the signs. They'll see what's going on. And when they see God on the move, they act. God really speaks to those who he knows will act. We're not in control but God calls us to learn and to respond. Here's a sad thing that we've all learned in this pandemic. When people are already divided, as in our country, even something that should bring us together, like fighting a global pandemic, doesn't. We are still divided. And rather than just think about how we can care about people in this situation, how we can save lives, some have used it to score political points. When people care more about their political future than the truth, it continues to divide people. And unfortunately, Christians have often got into this battle not merely with weapons of the Spirit of God, but with worldly, political, and, and legal weapons. We've not always used love and care for people as the basis for our appeals. Christian legal organizations, for instance, have been suing governors for urging churches not to meet. They say it violates our religious freedom to keep us from meeting. But wouldn't it be wiser if Christians would would work with the governors, would, would talk with them, that they would express their concerns to our city leaders to see what would be best? Wouldn't that be more godly? And fortunately, some Christian leaders I know in Santa Clara County are doing just that. We should all strive to work with all people for the good of the world in God's way. Now, the truth is, we all want to get back together as a church. It's part of our heritage. It's essential to the Christian faith. You know, the truth is, I don't think I've missed more than a handful of Sundays being together with a community of Christians in my whole life. Maybe it was a large group. Maybe it was a tiny group. I believe in meeting together. But we must use our God-given minds, and we must use compassion to help decide when and how we can get together again. I'm pleased that the elders and leadership team of Blossom Valley have been meeting to plan when and how we should get back together. But things will be different. I mean, we'll have to sit in family groups somehow, in, and our chairs are already going to be arranged differently. We'll probably have to wear masks. We'll probably have to do some things that we really would rather not do, but we do it for the sake of others. 
I confess that I was once involved in a legal battle against a city government for the right of a Christian institution to occupy a certain property that we thought would be good for the community and would be certainly good for the cause of Christ. But the city government opposed us for their own reasons. But though at the time um, I felt like we were fighting God's battle in God's way, as I look back, I'm not sure, so sure that we did it in a completely godly way. And though in the end we did not get to use the property, God's will was honored. As a board member said, it's a good thing we prayed about this or we might have got it. And we ended up getting an even better property and location. Whenever we Christians speak about our rights more than being willing to sacrifice them for others, we have to look carefully at our motives. Indeed, we will often argue for the rights of others. We will stand up for them. But often we must sacrifice our own rights in order to do this. And in a very different situation, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9:19 about his own willingness to give up his rights for the sake of others that they might be saved. He says, though I'm free, and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, Though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings." When we argue for freedom rather than thinking how we can best love and care for others, we miss the point of the gospel. And Paul gives up his freedom. He gives up his rights for the sake of others. We should too. The third point I want to make is this tough situation reminded all of us that we are the church. We are the church. We're still the body of Christ, whether we're together or whether we're apart. We would much rather be together. We miss the, the hugs and the handshakes. We miss the songs. We miss the smiles. We miss the words of encouragement and the words of challenge too. But during this time of forced separation, we've learned that we must be more flexible. And we must be more nimble than we have been. We must be able to quickly move to the changing situations in our world. And fortunately, we've learned how to do church services without a building or without even being in the same room. Now, one of the benefits to this is our expanded witness. Our witness is actually expanded. As we develop our technological methods, we found that people from other parts of the country and other parts of the world can join in our services too. And many churches have actually seen the number of their viewers increase dramatically uh, over the number who came to the building previously. 
And this pandemic has made me ask some big questions about us as the church. How would we fare in real persecution? I mean, if our church services were permanently banned, how many of us would still be followers of Jesus? How would we get our daily bread without a pastor feeding it to us on Sundays or having a Bible study in the week? Have we learned to be self-feeders where we can study the Bible for ourselves, where we can share with just a small group around us, maybe that, that nobody is noticing, that we can worship in that sort of way? How would it affect us if a, a, an oppressive government took over and said the church is no longer legal? Are we still the church? People have been asking the, quest, the practical questions. I mean, how and when will you reopen the church? But the truth is, the church never closed. We just stopped meeting together in a large group. We are still the church right now. Paul writes, when Nero, that, that murderous madman persecutor of Christians, while he was the emperor, he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. John wrote while he was exiled on the island of Patmos, do not be afraid of, about, of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whenever the church has been in crisis, the church has survived and thrived. When missionaries were kicked out of China in the late 1940s and early 1950s, everybody thought the church is going to die in China. However, the church Thrived. Christians were estimated at 4 million before 1949. And now they're estimated at over 67 million Christians in China. And even under renewed persecution and suppression of Christians today in China, Christianity reportedly is the fastest growing religion there with an average annual growth rate of 7%. One friend replied to my request for what they learned. I've learned to fully trust God, knowing that he's in control of everything. And in the midst of these terrible things, he's making something beautiful for those who trust him. It feels to me as if God is reminding us believers to keep our focus on him and rebuild our families before we rebuild our churches. And indeed, I think a lot of people are learning as they're home a whole lot more is that we need to rebuild our families. Related to the fact that we're the church, we have learned that we need each other. We really do. We can easily take each other for granted when we think, well, I'll see them next Sunday or I'll see them in our Bible study in the week. But many people have told me how much they miss seeing each other in person each week. We're created for community. God made us that way. We're not created to be islands in ourselves. We're created to be able to see each other in 3D, not in 2D on a screen. 
We want to be able to feel the presence of, of fellow believers and not be afraid that they're going to give us something that might kill us. Some say that our sheltering in place is a great time for introverts. But even introverts are starting to say, you know, I miss being around people. Some families have had college students return home, and, and now maybe their houses are feeling crowded with a lot of adults around again. Or maybe you're used to having your kids at school and a parent or two at work, and, and now you're all trying to compete for the same resources, for the internet, for the refrigerator, for the kitchen table, for whatever it is. So some who tend to gain energy from being on their own may need to go out and take a walk a little bit more. And of course, extroverts are the ones who actually suffer the most with isolation. They have the most trouble because they need others to energize them, to keep them going. But no matter where you are, no matter what your personality profile is, we all need community. We all need a small group of people where we can, where we can be together, where we can feel trusted to bear our souls, even our mid-coronavirus souls. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in the message paraphrase. He says, let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. Not avoiding worship together as, as some do, but spurring one another on, especially as we see the big day approaching. During our uninvited separation, we've had to find creative ways of getting together we've discovered that physical distancing does not have to mean lack of personal connection. It's not the same as social distancing. We're just physically apart. My wife and I have met friends in a parking lot where we sat in lawn chairs more than six feet apart, and we could really have some fellowship together there. Christians have found technology has actually been a blessing. How many of you had never heard of Zoom before? I see those hands. Uh, no, I don't, because we're not on Zoom. We're not on GoToMeeting. We're not on Google Meet. Some of you have probably found that you can use technology a little better than you thought. Maybe needed a little help, but you can actually do it. And people who are considered uh, technophobes by themselves or by others have learned to listen to sermons online and, and join life groups, perhaps. Now, I feel deeply, though, for those around the world who did not have the technology for any church connection during this time. Though many of my Indian brothers and sisters have cell phones, they don't always have the technology to actually present a message to people. And some don't even have service out in those rural mountainous areas. Some who recently became Christians and need that fellowship. And I'll be interested to know what they have learned during this time of isolation during this difficult time. Friends of mine in Kolkata who ministered to those who live on the streets just had a major cyclone rip through that part of the world and through their city to add to their already very difficult problems. My friends have been providing food parcels to those who have no way of earning a living and live on the street. And the pandemic is actually heating up there now, and it's become a hot spot, though they are far behind the U.S. in numbers. And though 
we know we need each other, I'm concerned that our normal American cultural individualism actually increases with isolation. In businesses where working from home worked really well, uh, some leaders are thinking, well, we may not even need to have an office at all for our company. Or some are thinking about working remotely uh, a whole lot more often, maybe permanently. But I wonder, what will that do for our sense of community? I don't think we know that yet. But there are positives, of course, to working remotely that many have found. It may help parents to be together more with their families, and that's really a good thing, avoiding those long commutes. We've also learned, as we think about needing each other, that we need each other to pray. Praying is really important. And more people today are praying with renewed fervor. We usually do so in a crisis. We pray for people we know. We pray for people we don't know who have the virus or some other problem. We pray for our health care workers and those others who serve us. We are more grateful for the little things in life. And so we give thanks to God with a renewed interest in giving him thanks. The fifth point I want to make that I feel I've learned is God is still with us. God is still God. We have to remember who God is. He has not changed in the midst of this. He was the same before the virus, during the virus, and he will be after the virus. Yesterday, today, and forever. The writer of Hebrews gives us a good reminder for these times in chapter 13. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. Be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Contentment is possible even in the midst of a pandemic. And since God is still with us, we remain faithful to him. A friend reminded me of the Lord's words in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Uh, that's pretty rare. But this passage says, though she may forget, though she may forget, I will not forget you, says God. And just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said that famous sentence, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now I realize that anxiety is real for a lot of us. Many have expressed it in ways never before, perhaps. We don't know if our job will be still there when we get done with this. We don't know if we will get back to college in the fall. We don't know how long our unemployment checks and, and stimulus checks will last. We don't know if COVID-19 will rear its invisible, ugly head again in the winter. There are a lot of things we just don't know. But we do know that God is still God. And God is still with you. You've probably been through tough times before, and you realized God walked through it with you. He will walk through it with you again. And so many of us have learned in this time to trust God more deeply. In the midst of our struggle, we know that there's no other option 
but to trust God. So the sixth point is, and this gives us a little break here, humor is still alive. It is, even in the midst of a global pandemic. In this first cartoon, the wife says to her husband, I guess I never realized how non-essential you are. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> then there's the takeaway from home isolation for so many parents. We're not paying teachers enough. And masks are a big issue. So the wife says to the husband, you are not wearing a polka dot mask with a plaid shirt. You know, people are watching. We have to be careful. Now, at the end of this service, I'm going to put on some more cartoons for you just to, to have a good laugh. Be sure to uh, pause and finish your communion before you go on to that. But I think we all need laughter as good medicine in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of our tough times. You can't miss the fact that a lot of people are stepping up to help in big ways. There are a lot of people with good will, good desires to help, despite the fact that we are all sinners. We're seeing our healthcare workers and first responders, policemen and firemen and ambulance workers as heroes like never before. We've seen nurses and doctors fly to New York and uh, other cities to help out. And unfortunately, some have contracted the virus, and some have died. They sacrificed for others. And we've always admired these people from a distance, but now we honor them, and we appreciate them as never before. And we show it with signs that people are making, and videos, and even military flyovers. And we are adding to our list of non-essential workers that we, we always just took for granted, many who are risking their lives now to serve us. Grocery store workers and postal workers, garbage collectors, many more. And at least 68 grocery store workers are known to have died with COVID. We've learned to be grateful. And that's an important lesson, to say thank you to people who've always served us, but now risk their lives to do so. And that's something we must continue to do with the people that serve us. You can never thank someone too much. And we've seen some big companies step up and contribute in big ways, some of them with big flash and, and some with just quiet service. And big government has contributed much as well. And of course, a, a lot of small individuals have stepped up and given significantly. They've contributed money. They've worked in overstressed food banks. They've reached out to their neighbors. And churches have stepped up, often in quiet ways. They've touched their communities in ways that will make a lasting difference. And many people, whose names we will never know, have called older adults who they felt could use a phone call and could be vulnerable or just lonely. They've donned a mask to get groceries for someone or to help their neighbors in some other ways. Some have actually said that this forced isolation has actually increased their sense of community in their area, their sense of connection with one another. The eighth point, we've also learned that crisis, it can be a prime time to share the gospel. 
A friend of mine in Amsterdam shares that people who are not Christians are asking her to pray for them, people who never would have done that before this crisis. A preschool in Santa Clara decided to share with their neighbors masks that they had because they had uh, thought about this ahead of time and other needed supplies. They shared them with the families near their school and they called each family and they asked if they could pray for them. And people who were non-believers were responding positively. I mean, how can you not respond when somebody just blesses you? One friend in Campbell told her neighbor of 33 years, Now you never want to go to church with me, so would you go to church in your own home? So the neighbor lady watched the service online and said, You know, I thought church was boring. But that pastor guy, he talks like us. That pastor wasn't me. I am boring. (laughs) The neighbor lady also said, you have communion too? Are you Catholic? Uh, Don't you need a priest without communion? I mean, where are the, the elements in communion? So the lady gave her neighbor some communion elements. And we'll see what happens in that situation. Perhaps some people will find the Lord through technology now who would never have darkened the door of a church building. A friend in our life group has actually started a Zoom Bible study with some friends, most of whom are non-Christians or who know very little about the Bible and have never been in a Bible study before. She's studying the Gospel of John with them. Perhaps you could do that with some people you know as well. Another thing we've learned is to be grateful for the ordinary, for the simple things in life. One friend was very sick for six weeks. It wasn't the coronavirus, but it was something that seemed as serious. And after she got through with this, she said how grateful she was just to take a walk, just to see some flowers. Living in the flight path of a a huge international airport, she's enjoying the quiet now since there are no planes. And we are now actually able to see from the air the most polluted cities in the world that before all we could see was pollution. I wonder if our environment is actually enjoying this break as well. Now, if you've had a loss during this time, you know that grief is even deeper now. If someone in your family has been ill with the coronavirus, you couldn't visit them in the hospital. And if they passed away, you would not even be able to grieve with them at a funeral. George Garcia said that his uncle and aunt both died with the COVID-19 an hour apart. He can't even attend the funeral as it's only for a few people. And that's the situation for over 100,000 American families today and well over 350,000 people in the world. And even if a person dies for some other reason, you're unlikely to be able to go to a funeral yet. Grief is more difficult during this time. We've also confirmed at this time, as the Robert Frost poem tells us, the best way out is always through. We've learned that from our study of James as well. 
Perseverance is not overrated. When you're in trial, you face up to it. You walk through it with friends. You lift somebody up. You help someone you didn't know before. But the best way out is always through. We can't go around this. We have to go through it. And we go through it with God and with other people. Another thing I've learned is we don't have to be afraid to ask a question that has no answer. We don't know why or how this coronavirus started. Most people think it probably started in a live animal market in Wuhan, China, with bats or perhaps some other freak mutation. But perhaps the most important question is, what is God saying in this situation? Some prophesy that this pandemic is a sign of the end of the world. Or maybe it's the sign of the judgment of God on our sinful world. Or that we should never eat meat again. Honestly, I don't know. People have thought a lot of world incidents in the past were signs of the end of the world and have been proved wrong so far. One day, they may be right. Maybe now. But still, we shouldn't be afraid to ask a question that we don't have a definite answer to. And we should be careful of giving an absolute answer of which there's no way to be certain. Our world probably does deserve the judgment of God for our sins. So we shouldn't quickly dismiss even that answer. In closing, I think this pandemic has caused us all to ask some really important questions. Questions not just to ask during the pandemic, but to ask ourselves all the time. The first one is, what is really important in your life? What values will you live by? How will you spend your time? How will you spend the rest of your life? The second one is, how much of your life is controlled by fear and how much by faith? And then, how have you expressed compassion during this time? How have you reached out to others? How have you given to others in this situation? And then, how will you? What have you learned in this situation in how you will share compassion and care in the future? And the question we all have to answer, if you should get the COVID-19 virus, or some other illness, are you ready to meet the Lord? The Lord is ready to meet you. He wants to meet you. Jesus wants you to come to him and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And this invitation is open to everyone. And there's no better time to accept his gift of salvation than right now. The Bible tells us that believing the truth is the first step. You have to come to know that Jesus really is God's son who came to the world to die for your sin. And and he raised to new life so that you might also have new life. Then you confess that you have sinned, that you have done wrong in your life. All of us have sinned. So you turn away from that old way of life and move toward the new life. The Bible calls this repenting. And then the next step is to be buried in 
buried with Christ in baptism, an immersion in water, a connection with the death and burial of Jesus and with his resurrection, his new life. And he wants to give you that new life. I hope that you will consider that carefully if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. You can call or email the number on the screen at the end of the message to talk to one of us about you becoming a follower of Jesus and starting a whole new life with him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for what we have learned during this pandemic. Lord, we have to be honest and say we didn't want to learn these things. We didn't want to go through this. We didn't want to see people dying all over the world. We didn't want to see people lose their jobs. We didn't want to see the economy go down. But Lord, you've taught us something. And I pray that we will learn these lessons that I've mentioned today and that I will put them deep in my heart. And we pray that you will also teach us new lessons, lessons that I haven't yet learned. And I pray for anyone, Lord, who has decided to follow you today, that they will take those steps that you've given us of just coming to you, putting our trust in you, confessing and receiving you in trust. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us so much and that you love us so deeply that you sent your son to die and rise for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now if you will just uh, watch and listen to this song, and then we'll transition into communion from there. God bless you.
It was supposed to be a celebration dinner that night, a meal with friends and family to commemorate one of the greatest events in Jewish history, the Passover, celebrating and remembering the rescue of the Jews from the captivity in Egypt. Typically, blessings were said over cups of wine and unleavened bread that was broken and eaten, and the Passover story was told again. But that night was a night that changed everything for Jesus' friends as they listened to him and realized that from now on, nothing would ever be the same again. So the meal itself was part of the story and all about freedom and redemption. Much like I suppose we as a nation remember and commemorate Memorial Day and those who fought and died for our freedom. But Passover was not only about looking back at what God had already done when he freed them from the slavery in Egypt. It was a celebration and an anticipation of the coming Messiah. It was a time when the food they ate and the things they did and said looked forward to a new day a new life when the Savior would come, when everything would change, and they would have new freedom from the slavery of sin that even they couldn't fully understand then. So again, the meal wasn't only about the freedom, but also about redemption. And as I read this story again of the last night Jesus spent with his friends at this meal, for me, it was also a beautiful reminder of God's unconditional love and undeserved grace that is freely given, not just to those who love him back, but also to those who feel confused and sinful and unworthy. Because at the table that night with Jesus, we're not just those faithful followers of his who loved him, but also the very one who would soon betray him. And Jesus knew it. He wasn't caught off guard or taken by surprise, and he could have excluded him from that meal, but he didn't. And it is that very fact that lets me know that I can come to his table today just as I am, sinful and unworthy, and not be rejected or excluded, but instead be given forgiveness and undeserved grace. So if you have your cup of juice and your bread that you're going to be using to represent Jesus today, you might want to have them ready right now. But before we take those together, let's take a minute to thank him for what it means to know that we are welcome at the table with him, no matter 
the sinful condition of our hearts. Knowing that He sees us, He knows us, and there is nothing hidden about us that He doesn't know, and He still loves us more than we could ever imagine. And that, as it tells us in His Word, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me ask you something. Is there something in your life that has made you feel unworthy to sit at the table with Jesus? Something that you thought so unforgivable? Something that's maybe kept you from entering into a true relationship with Him because you felt so undeserving? Let it go. Let it go and take this minute right now to talk to him about it and find the blessing of forgiveness and love that he has for you. Maybe this is the day that you can accept the forgiveness, the freedom, and the new life in Christ that he is offering you, a life of hope and fulfillment and peace. Maybe like that Passover night so many years ago, this day can be the start of something new in you and life will never be the same again. Let's think about those things now and take a minute to do that and then we'll take communion together. Father, we take this bread right now that represents your son's body. And we take this juice that represents his blood. And we thank you for allowing us to come to your table today accepted, forgiven, and redeemed because of Jesus. Amen.